please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. The reading for this morning is from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malin and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malin and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. My name is Brian. If I've never met you before, if you're tuning in for the first time or visiting here, I'm the pastor here at Trinity City Church. I welcome you uh, to this gathering in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A couple things to highlight before we get into the sermon, before we pray. One thing, there's some announcements from uh, Governor Walls this week and our public officials on some things that are uh, going to be changing in terms of guidelines uh, that have been in place to deal with the pandemic and the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, obviously, that's on my radar. It's on the radar of our staff and church leaders, and we'll be using the coming days to discuss what that means for how things will look here and what timelines uh, we will be putting into effect. So be praying for us as we have those conversations and thinking about how in the coming months uh, things might start to feel and look a little bit different here as well. But if you're like me, and, I'm, and you know this about me, I'm an extrovert, as soon as he said something about the State Fair being on, I was just like, yes, bring whatever on a stick on. Let's do this. Like, let's end this thing. And that was one of the drives for me, like with uh, even just getting the vaccine. I mean, that thing could have turned me into a donkey at night, but if it got me into Applebee's, I was gonna t take that vaccine. Like, I am ready uh, to, to start moving forward on this. So as you can see, that's, that's a little bit of my excitement about uh, what this could mean for ministry and church and summer ministry, and especially in the fall. So be praying for us as we think about uh, how that will look in terms of implementing those things here at Trinity. Uh, we are going to start a new sermon series today on the book of Ruth. This is going to be five weeks long. Josiah asked me uh, the the Viking-looking guy that does uh, music, if you don't know who I'm talking about. Uh, if this was intentional, it was Mother's Day. Did I pick Ruth to, ch uh, to begin uh, on Mother's Day intentionally? And nope, that was an accident. Kind of like if I use a pun in a, a sermon, it's usually unintentional. Uh, but I will nonetheless take full credit for it. Uh, so yeah, Mother's Day, Book of Ruth, let's, let's go after it. It's going to be good. So we'll be spending the next five Sundays uh, on the Book of Ruth. That will get us to the beginning of June. Let's go ahead and pause and bow our hearts and our heads in prayer to prepare to hear his word. Let's pray. God of mercy, you promise never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, we ask you, Lord, to speak your eternal word to us because your word does not change. Enable us to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. 
We pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My new neighborhood has a rough past. This is something I just found out a little bit more about because I watched a documentary from TPT called St. Paul's Historic Hill. Um, as a reminder, and especially for those that you don't know, I used to live just two blocks away from here and then I moved one mile east. Um, uh, what was it, back in November that this happened and live in a new neighborhood, the Summit University neighborhood. And uh, the, the surrounding neighborhoods around there is, is called Historic Hill. Uh, so think about like the east side of Grand Avenue or the east side of Selby and some of the, the neighborhoods around there with some of those Victorian homes and some of those just really, really old homes that were built late 1800s early 1900s. So this was a documentary that highlighted the history of that neighborhood and it highlights how, uh, especially uh, after the Second World War, the neighborhood started to deteriorate and got worse and worse from the 50s to the 60s into the 70s. I even recall when, when I first moved here uh, in, back to Minnesota into St. Paul in 2008, I had a coworker at the coffee house I was working at and she lived around Selby Dale and she said that her first, and she wasn't from Minnesota, she moved here for work and school, and she said that her first memory of the initial weeks here was being mugged on a Selby and Dale, but she described it as the most polite mugging that's ever happened. It was like, May, uh, could you please give me your purse? I, I wanna steal that from you. That was kind of like the dialogue. So even the muggings in Minnesota are Minnesota nice, it's wild. Uh, so even I mean, there's even a reputation to this day of some of the, the old history of that neighborhood. And uh, one of the, the, the stories that I, uh, remember specifically in the, uh, the documentary that, that stood out is how this neighborhood was notorious for uh, you go out to eat and there would be gangsters, mobsters there, I think like Al Capone type of thing, like regional uh, gangster celebrities that would just be hanging out in these neighborhoods of St. Paul uh, right along just with St. Paul families and there was this arrangement that public officials had during this time that uh, St. Paul was a safe city for gangsters to come and just to be here and the arrangement was you can be here we won't arrest you we won't turn you into federal or state authorities if you just promise not to like pillage or steal or murder anybody uh, as, as long as you behave here we'll leave you alone you leave us alone you can go over to Minneapolis do whatever you want but as long as, long as you are here you got to behave yourself and that was just kind of the culture of the neighborhood and then the other thing that started to happen is that people were a little less and less interested in the neighborhood uh, the houses start to deteriorate uh, and uh, there was plans to start leveling some of these homes and you can see the remnants of that right now if you drive down Summit Avenue and you see like these big beautiful historic homes but then every once in a while you see well, there's a like mid-modern home and then there's a split level. Where did that come from? It was because city officials thought that this, this neighborhood was essentially irredeemable. Like we just need, people are moving away. We just need to level these places, make it feel a little bit more like the suburbs where people are moving into because people do not want to live here. So that was part of the emphasis of the documentary the bad stuff about the, that neighborhood. But then it also highlighted these individual lives of individuals that moved into these neighborhoods and said, you know what, I see the beauty here, I see the potential. And they would have these stories of going to a house that was about to be bulldozed over uh, for $2,500, and this one gal, for example, offers the owner, look, I will give you $2,500 if I can 
uh, own this house and I'm going to turn it around. And then story after story like that are these individuals moving in, uh, taking a risk, committing themselves to this neighborhood, and then starting to just renovate and turn these homes around. It even highlights some uh, com commercial uh, business leaders that started to invest in these neighborhoods, one of the first being over on Selby and Western, W.A. Frost and the ownership behind there, and on Grand Avenue, one of the first businesses to really start to invest in these neighborhoods was bread and chocolate. And then, back then when they did this, this was more, this was not the hip neighborhood that you think of right now. This was not a place you were, where you would want to go out to eat. In fact, uh, the owner of W.A. Frost said that in those days, especially in the 70s when he, when he initially opened that um, restaurant, people didn't go there because it was like a fancy place to go. They, they went there for bragging rights. They said, I went to W.A. Frost and did not get shot. That was, that was why people went there. So obviously the, the neighborhood as we know it now has uh, turned around and it's become a lot different, but it has to do with this loyalty and this commitment that these individuals had to turn this neighbor these neighborhoods around to invest in these neighborhoods before anybody else wanted to. And so I love the documentary because it doesn't just focus on the bad, but it focuses on the renewal. It focuses on the, the commitment that uh, a neighborhood can have to its own built environment. This is the type of theme that's running through the book of Ruth as well. And it's one of the reasons I picked this book because there's a sense that we're coming out of a season where we can emphasize a lot of the negative and the bad things. But there's also, especially when we're gospel people, a recognition that we can have that God has been up to something. God has been involved, God is restoring, God is renewing, God is calling us to commit ourselves to a greater cause, even in the midst of this, this situation that's been really rough the last year plus, but nonetheless, God is renewing all things, and things are going to get better. That's what the book of Ruth is about. And for the, this first sermon, uh, this is what I often do when we launch a book of the Bible, whether it's an Old or New Testament, I like to do an overview, so I called this, uh, this uh, sermon Ruth Trailer, which sounded weird because I'm not saying that Ruth lived in a trailer, uh, they didn't have those back then, uh, so this is trailer like a movie, it's like an overview of the book of Ruth, and I want to highlight three key themes that are going to keep popping up in the book of Ruth as we go through each chapter in the coming weeks. First theme is this, the redemption of a bitter life to a renewed life. The redemption of a bitter life to a renewed life. The first verse of Ruth says, in those days the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. What were the days of Judges like? It highlights it happened when the Judges ruled. And if you go over to Judges uh, chapter 21, verse 25, it says, in those days, the days of the Judges, when they ruled, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Not a high moral situation, a high ethical and just situation in those days. Judges in these days were not, don't think people in a courtroom making rulings on a case, uh, God's people were in a situation in these days where they would constantly turn from the Lord, disobey him and his ways, and then the enemies of God would bring suffering to God's people. So then God would raise up these leaders called judges, and they didn't have any type of official public capacity. 
Uh, they were just these people that God would randomly uh, raise up, and then the judges would bring restoration to God's people, but then when one judge leaves the picture, God's people would go back to a life of sin and evil and injustice again. So the entire book of Judges, if you've never read it before, it's a really, really dark book. It's one of those books where like, you couldn't honestly say a sermon series on the book of Judges would be anything below PG-13. I mean, this thing would be a rated R book with the stories that would come up. And the book reads too where things get dark at the beginning, but then they get progressively worse throughout the book. It, gets, it goes from bad to worse. That's the type of book that it is. Let me highlight just three examples from the book of Judges. There's a story about someone driving a tent peg and hammering it through somebody's head. There's a story about a, a guy who has such a corrupt view of God that he thinks offering his daughter in a sacrifice is a good thing. There's a, the last chapters tell the most, probably the most horrific story in the book of sexual abuse followed by more violence, more war, and more unjust vengeance. And then the book ends. That's the book of Judges. That's the setting that the book of Ruth is taking place in. And the book of Ruth opens specifically highlighting, again, uh, something that's that's bad that's happening. There's a famine in the land, and this causes this family to leave their homeland to go to a, a different land so that they could just provide basic needs for their family so they would not starve to death. That's how the book of Ruth opens. It opens describing an empty life. Naomi first loses her husband, and then her two sons marry these Moabite women, yet they don't bear children over the course of 10 years, and then her sons die as well, leaving uh, Naomi with her two uh, daughter-in-laws and no family beyond that. And this was a big deal in this ancient setting. Naomi losing her family line like this means that she also lost her social safety net, meaning that the days uh, that are coming at her now is ones that she's anticipating is just going to be full of struggle, that she's just struggling each and every day to figure out and to find her basic needs and make sure that they are being met. That's what she's looking at now. It's a life of that type of struggle each and every day. In fact, at the, at the end of chapter one, she expresses the depth of her pain, Naomi does, by telling people to not call her Naomi anymore, but to change her name to Mara, which means bitter. And I went to a, a, a church, uh, the church that planted us, Hope Community Church, and they did a sermon series on the book of Ruth, and I can't get out of my head that when, when the pastor uh, preached on this, he wouldn't just say Mara, he wanted it to sound bitter too, so he'd be like, Mara! So it's like it had to sound like when you saved Mara, it has to sound bitter too, because that's the, that's the, the deal that's going on in her life. But unlike the book of Judges, which goes from bad to worse, this story is different. It starts in this really uh, unlikely, unjust, evil, and, and a setting that's just full of suffering. It starts there, but this is a book that's more than that. It's a book about God taking an empty life and filling it up. God taking a bitter life and renewing it. One of the things we see in the first chapter that we'll look at a lot next week is that Ruth, the daughter-in-law, sticks by her mother-in-law and refuses to leave her. And then Ruth goes back with her mother-in-law to her hometown, meets this guy named Boaz. 
And Boaz is this guy of high character, shows favor to the family. And then comes this scene later in the book with Ruth and Boaz on the threshing room floor. We'll get to that a little bit later. Sounds kind of scandalous. I'm actually, I've actually heard different things about that scene and what might be going on culturally. I'm really excited to kind of like get some clarity because it's just even the, like that phrase like, ooh, Ruth and Boaz on the threshing room floor, it just sounds kind of scandalous and we'll find out if it is in the coming weeks. But after that situation, it sets up the end of the book where God is, is putting this family into a position of restoring the family line and restoring uh, their life as a result of it. Ruth chapter 4, verses 14 through 15 uh, highlight the ending and how God has filled this life back up. The women of the community said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. So that is a major theme going through the book of Ruth. It's hope in the midst of a bitter life. It's looking ahead to something that's going to be amazing and restorative even when things don't look that way right now. It reminded me of our current situation. I was reading an article this week from NPR uh, that talked about how many people right now have like this foggy brain thing going on where they're struggling with fatigue and a foggy brain and anxiety, depression, and all these types of symptoms are very, very common and all of them are up in almost a universal sense during this pandemic. And most of it's due, according to some of these public health experts and psychologists that they interviewed, most of it's due, of course, to the pandemic uprooting our life, that everything about our daily predictable routine was just ended, and we went through this year-plus experience of when are things going to come back to normal, what new guidelines do we have to follow, what type of regulations is going to happen when my kids go back to school or my classes go back to in-person, or if I have to go back into the office and just all this like unpredictable day-to-day life is causing people to be depressed, anxious, and, and suffer with some significant fatigue. And the article goes on and shows like some uh, tips that these experts are giving us to endure this and things that we have been doing to show how uh, just, just enduring we've been through this pandemic. But they basically all said the same thing. Well, it's not actually going to go away until the pandemic goes away. But when the pandemic goes away, most of these symptoms will go away too. And it's just like, whoa, okay. Uh, that doesn't help us now. But there is a sense, though, that there is this hopefulness that we should have right now in this kind of pivotal mo- moment where we're hearing from our public officials and, and, our, and our public leaders, things are about to change. People are getting vaccinated. The risks are going down and things are about to change. And I think you should allow yourself to be excited and hopeful about that. But also to be realistic. It's good to, it's good to be weird initially. Uh, when we started these services to uh, go back in person from our pre-recorded service days, uh, I remember we all had this common experience when we started to get back into the same room together that it was just kind of odd because it had a remnant of what it used to be like, but still there's masks, there's distancing. For a while we didn't have coffee or anything. And I know there's some folks that are tuning in that they have, have yet to come back. And you're going to experience that. It's going to be weird, it's going to be awkward. But one of the things I also want you to enjoy and to take in in this moment 
is that these things are ending. And the Lord is bringing us out of this, this chapter, it seems, of our, of our kind of communal experience. And I want us to lean into this, these themes from the book of Ruth to say, what has God been doing? What has he been teaching us? How is he going to be maybe calling me to another chapter of my life now where he's going to be filling me back up with things that have been taken away from me for a long, long time? So that's one of the reasons I picked this book because I think that this moment is following a similar theme as the book of Ruth. Here's a second theme. The providence of God in the background of life. That's another major theme in the book of Ruth. In one sense, if you look at the book of Ruth, God's role is very passive. He's in almost not a, not a main character. He's not, he's not a person that dominates the dialogue or is the, the subject of many of the sentences. Uh, it's a very character-dominated book where God has taken more of a passive role in the background of this book, but nonetheless, he is highlighted throughout the book, but not in the way that you think a, a, a book of the Bible often does it. You usually are used to a narrator saying, God did this, and the purposes of God in this situation was for this purpose, and God is showing his people this about himself. But that type of active narration about who God is and what he's doing is largely absent from this book. There are two verses specifically in the entire book where the narrator tells us specifically about God's actions. Ruth 1.6 is one of them. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there. They're highlighting God's action in providing aid and food for his people. Ruth 4.13 is the other one. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And we had made love to her. This is not on the threshing room floor, by the way. The Lord enabled her. See that action? The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. That's it. So most of what we know about God's activity in the book of Ruth is from the dialogue of the characters themselves. That's where we hear more about what God is doing. Ruth 1, 20 through 21 is an example. Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. See that theme again? Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So here, from Naomi's perspective, she has this high awareness of God's involvement in her life. She even says back in verse 13 of the same chapter that God's hand is against her. So she has this high awareness of God's activity. Later, uh, in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz says to Ruth, May the Lord repay you for what you have done, this kindness that she's showing to her mother-in-law. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Again, we're learning more about God's activity through the dialogue of the characters. Ruth 4.14, Then the women of the community, we already looked at this once before, said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. Again, showing God's action in renewing and filling Naomi's life back up again, saying that God did this, God redeemed it through this individual. So what we see here is God's providence in the details of life, but it's not in your face. It's not, it's not um, 
as you expect it from other books of the Bible. It's mainly through the dialogue and the ordinary life of these individuals that have a high awareness of God's involvement in their life and in their history. God's providence means that God rules according to his plan. He's working out everything according to his purposes. He's involved in human activity and history so that all things are headed towards the goal of his glory. Romans 8.28 says this about God's providence, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, human history is not ruled by luck or chance. It's ruled by God's providence. We often think of God's providence maybe in these like big epic biblical events like splitting the Red Sea into two or raising somebody from the dead and that is a sign of God's providence but Ruth shows us that God's providence is also there in the ordinary, mundane, almost boring aspects of your life too. The characters have this high awareness that God is there. He's directing history according to his purposes. A third and final theme I want to highlight is the kindness of God's people in everyday life. That's another major theme in the book of Ruth. The kindness of God's people in everyday life. A key characteristic of God is highlighted uh, in the book of Ruth and is highlighted throughout the Old and New Testament. It's in Ruth chapter 1, verse 8, when Naomi said to her, da- her two daughter-in-laws, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home, May the Lord show you kindness, that's the key word there, may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. Highlighting God's kindness, that that word is a Hebrew word throughout the Old Testament that's super rich. It means that God is faithful to his promises. It means that God has this characteristic of, of, of being a loving God, a kind God in our daily lives, especially towards his people. He is a God who's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's what's behind that word about God's kindness, where God freely commits to redeeming a people for himself. And we are his people and he is our God. That's God's kindness, his faithful, loving commitment to us. But then in that verse, notice how uh, Naomi sees God's kindness and knows that, but then also sees in her daughter-in-law that same type of kindness to her. She recognizes this kindness, this attribute of God is also in you in your relationship with me. And that brings us to the most popular passage in the book of Ruth. We'll look at it in more detail next week, where notice again this emphasis is on Ruth's kindness to her mother-in-law and even just her commitment, her loyalty to her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her to change her mind. That's the kindness, the commitment that, the, that this, this daughter-in-law had towards her mother-in-law, that Ruth had towards Naomi. You also see this kindness and this commitment to, uh, uh, in human relationships between Ruth and Boaz. Ruth chapter 2, verse 10. At this, she bowed 
down with her face to the ground. This is Ruth. And she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you noticed me a foreigner? She's recognizing Boaz's kindness and commitment to her. And Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. Human kindness, human loyalty, human commitment, massive theme in the book of Ruth where God's uh, kindness and commitment is reflected in the ordinary acts of humans uh, to one another and their loyalty and their kindness and commitment to one another. One of my favorite verses of the book of Ruth is towards the end when again the women of the city are talking to Naomi and they say in chapter, uh, chapter 4 verse 15, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth. Better to you than seven sons. That's the type of companionship I think many of us long for. And one of the things I want to highlight is that we are even in this historical moment where this sense of loyalty, commitment, companionship is absent from many lives, from your neighbor's lives. Many, many people have not experienced this level of loyalty and commitment. And part of the reason for that is we're one of the more transient generations ever, and most of us do not live close to extended family. And so you get into a city like this, and you're starting over, and it's just, it's just you, or it's just you and your, your, uh, your wife and your kids, but you don't have like extended relationship that provide quite the support that extended family did in your hometown. And so now you're here, and so many people can live here in this city for decades, and they never experience any type of depth of relationship that's described in the book of Ruth. Just never experience it. And, like, and, and, and there's almost a sense where the pandemic hasn't been any different than what life was like before. Their life still was isolated from friendship and companionship. But one of the things that you see here is when we as a people worship God who is kind, who is faithful to his covenant and his promises to us, it creates in us a community where our relationships look like that, even with people who we are not bonded together with, with them through biological blood or genetics or family tree, that we have created people in the church because we worship this covenant faithful God where we have this sense of loyalty to a calling, kindness to one another, and commitment to a friendship that will be completely countercultural to the city around us that mainly experience isolated lives without true friendships. And so one of the things we are going to see in this book is this calling in our community, in this church, to bond together in loyal love of friendship and relationships in a way that most of our neighbors rarely ever experience. And that will be a calling of the Book of Ruth on our lives. In conclusion, I want to end where, um, and give you a highlight and a hint of where the book of Ruth ends. And it's not just on the, the birth of a child into this family line that's what's important. It actually kind of zooms back and it ends with this genealogy, which seems really, really odd to end with a description of, of Ruth and Boaz's family tree. 
But it is significant because I think the whole book of Ruth seems like so ordinary and so detailed and so mundane in a sense that you forget that part of the reason this book exists in the Bible is to show that it's part of a grander narrative of God fulfilling his promises in epic and cosmic ways. So one of the things that the genealogy is highlighting is that, that Ruth and Boaz are part of this family tree where God is, is, is orchestrating events in history so that he's fulfilling his promise that he's going to raise up a king someday, and this king is going to be the king of an everlasting kingdom, and, and he will be an everlasting king. And it points to this uh, a king na- named David that's going to come from the family tree of Ruth and Boaz. But more than that, we as Christians know that within the family tree of King David, it points forward again to a true and better king, King Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to us. And so Ruth and Boaz are part of that family tree, the family tree of the Messiah and the King of the universe, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So one of the purposes, it seems, of Ruth, it's like, it's like, I don't think I've ever done an illustration about Star Wars before, but I know many people in our congregation really like Star Wars. Some people are so committed to Star Wars, they'll even get tattoos. And some people like Star Wars so much that they've watched the prequels more than once, more than once, which is radical. Like, why would you do that? They're terrible. But one of the things you see in like how the whole like, like canon of Star Wars unfolds, right, is you have like the big nine, right, the big nine stories that is the, the grand narrative of the universe of Star Wars. And then you have, in my opinion, the better spinoffs, right, that kind of zoom in on like these ordinary like like uh, corners of the Star Wars universe where it's highlighting this Mandalorian or whatever it is. And it's kind of like more mundane. It feels a little less epic as like the, the main nine. But in my opinion, there, there's something like that's so refreshing about them. Uh, and, and Ruth has a similar function in the grand narrative of scripture. The grand narrative, as we know, is all pointing to Jesus Christ. But it kind of zooms into this almost like biblical spinoff where it's just this ordinary, mundane life of, of like these crazy things that are going on in this person's life, but nonetheless is connected to something greater. In fact, it's connected to how God is, is directing history to be united in his son, Jesus Christ. It's part of what Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 says, that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's the big story. That's the big narrative. And what we will see in the coming weeks is that Ruth is also, yes, about this woman named Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, and this guy named Boaz. But more than that, this is another example of an ordinary story that's uniting everything into Jesus Christ. And Ruth is a book that's all about Jesus. And we'll see that in the coming weeks.